Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. Sometimes you want to just go right back in. And it's crazy. You want to go back in where you don't want to be. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. We tend to think of health care in terms of physical ailments like broken bones. But what about mental health care? Getting treatment for the mind can be just as critical as getting treatment for the body. And going without it can be devastating. It's a sad fact that too many people with untreated mental illnesses end up in prison. A 2006 government study found that there were more than 700,000 mentally ill people in state prisons. That's more than 10 times the number in state hospitals. Once there, some of these mentally ill inmates are locked up in solitary confinement. Research has shown that being locked up in a room alone for extended periods of time is terrible for a person's mental health. But that research has focused exclusively on men. Reporter Annie Brown interviewed a dozen women who had been locked in solitary confinement for a qualitative medical study. Small, a little bigger than the bathroom. The screaming is what you remember. The screaming and the people just pounding on their doors like... Okay, toilet paper. Let's just make them beg for that. Let's make... Please, please, can I get a sanitary Oh, God. It's like everything is shrinking in on me. I'd rather be dead. But I thought I was going to drown. I was pouring, like, soap on my head at one point. I can't take this. I can't take this. I'm a black girl sitting in a cell. Who cares? She'll be okay. Annie Brown found that there are some striking differences between how men and women react to solitary confinement. She brings us the story of one woman recently released from prison. I love looking beautiful in prison. You try to keep yourself up because it helps you because you don't want to lose yourself. This is Deborah. That's not her real name. I met her last summer. She'd just come home from a prison in upstate New York. Oh, I would steal coats. I would go and bag up clothes. She'd been in and out of prison for nearly 30 years, mostly for shoplifting. And she spent a lot of time in solitary confinement. The first time she went into solitary, she was on her way to a disciplinary hearing for wearing the wrong shoes. In the handcuffs, she kept lifting my arms up. She was hurting my back, so I was going like this, trying to pull my back in. They took it as I was being aggressive, which I wasn't. And they found me guilty for um, disobeying a direct order. She was put in the special housing unit which is one kind of solitary confinement. And now I'm here. I have to stay in this room for 60 days. 60 days by herself in a locked room for 23 hours a day. Every major research study on the effects of solitary confinement has focused on men. But women are in there too. In New York State alone, every year, 1,600 women get put in solitary confinement. I interviewed 12 women who'd been in solitary in New York for longer than two weeks. 45 days. 90 days. 151 days. 
and I found that women react in some of the same ways that men do, but they also responded differently. Specifically, women in prison are often survivors of sexual violence, and solitary confinement exacerbates that trauma. You, you go in the, in the room, um, it's empty. It's just the, um, the bed, a thin mattress, a pillow that's flat. You get two pants, two shirts, and underwear. That's it. You sit there and you wait. For Deborah's first few days in solitary, the things that bothered her were mostly physical. You, you get a shower every other day. Weekends, not at all. First, you don't get no deodorant, no lotion. She couldn't have lotion, so Deborah would take her butter from her breakfast tray to use as moisturizer. And hopefully, they, you get butter on the tray. If you don't get no butter, oh no, this is a dry day. But if you have your menstruation and you need sanitary, that's where the problem comes in. Every day at 4 o'clock, the officer comes first before the truck comes. She says, oh, we don't have sanitary. I'll give you extra tissue. And you can go two days without any sanitary using tissue. Deborah says that these first couple of weeks were hard, but bearable. But after a while, your mind starts to twitch from lack of stimulation. Every woman I spoke to said that after about two weeks in solitary, they started to feel like they were losing it. At that point, Deborah was in a pretty dark place. Well, just think about your life. And if you're thinking about your life, you're crying. Deborah got paranoid wouldn't even leave her cell for the one hour she was allowed to. I stayed in 24 hours. Now that I'm locked in the room, I'm protected from everything. It got to the point where everything that she heard outside of her cell became terrifying. Deborah was having flashbacks. The thing is, this was not the first time she'd been locked in a small room for a long time. It all started when she was 13. She snuck out of her grandmother's house to go to a party. Go to the party. This guy that I danced with, he's like, um, come with me. He said he was going to go to his house. When we went in, it was all these guys down there. They just did what they wanted to. Oh, and I was crying. I just cried. I just laid there. I remember I just laid there and cried and cried and cried. Deborah didn't tell anyone she'd been raped, but he didn't leave her alone. He would come to my school, taunting me and actually make me go with him. He used to keep a gun. I was really afraid of him. So I would go, I would go. And one day he came to my grandma's house and I left and I never went back home. Why? I didn't want him to come to my grandma's house and I didn't want him to see my sister. My sister's so pretty. And I didn't want them to do that to her. As for her grandmother, she let her go. She thought she was just staying with her boyfriend. Like, what is she, what is she gonna do it? I was her granddaughter, I wasn't her daughter. Yes, used to lock me in the apartment. And this went on for five years. And throughout the five years, if I would try to leave, I would get beat. And that's when I started stealing. Like, when I was still, I was invisible. Nobody doesn't see me now. So it's great to be invisible, isn't it? When that happened to you and, and you think you're so ugly, 
that you don't look in the mirror. I used to get expensive clothing to make myself feel good because if I had the finest thing on, oh, so that covered up everything. Out of the 12 women I talked to, nine of them had a story a lot like Deborah's. It was difficult to independently verify all the details of their stories, but the research supports this. A report in the journal Criminal Behavior and Mental Illness found that women in prison have at least three times as much PTSD as men in prison. These traumas come roaring back in solitary. There's no stimulation or human interaction, and your senses become heightened. So normal, benign sounds like a door closing or footsteps down the hall become louder, more intense. You, I hear, you hear everything. You hear everything. You do. This happens all the time to people deprived of stimulation. But if you have PTSD, these little sounds can become traumatizing. The adrenaline starts pumping. Oh, goodness. I, 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 just, I always thought about it. It wasn't always on my mind. If someone's walking, it's like him coming. Yeah. I would think about everything he did. It, my mind stayed on him because everything always went back to this, to him. Why I'm like I am. I, why I had the fear I had. It all went back to him. Deborah relived her trauma throughout the entire two months she spent in solitary. You'd think that she'd be thrilled to finally get out, but she says the time in there changed her. You have to jump right back into work and all that, and, and you're not ready. You're really not. You're not ready to interact like that. I used to love going around. I'm, women come to me for their problems. I work with the chaplain. I didn't want to see nobody. I didn't want the chaplain. I didn't want... Nobody. You don't. So you, sometimes you want to just go right back in. And it's, it's crazy. You want to go back in where you don't want to be. How long, was it, how long was it between your first and your second sentence? Oh, I went back the next day when I got out. I went, out, I went back the next day. What was your second charge for? Out of place. I, I, I walked off my unit and went in another unit. And I only got 15 days and I was mad because I wanted more. I want to just stay away. Since then, Deborah's been in and out of prison three times. It's hard to say whether solitary kept her in that cycle of trauma and crime, but it clearly didn't help either. Deborah was recently released again. She's back in Brooklyn now. For Life of the Law, I'm Annie Brown. And I'm Nancy Mullane. So what about putting people with mental illness in solitary confinement? Back in 2010, the New York State Legislature passed a law that offers treatment to prisoners diagnosed with mental illnesses instead of solitary, but only to people diagnosed with some, not all, mental illnesses. And PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder, isn't included in the list. And prison officials can keep people in solitary indefinitely. Now, some legislators in New York are trying to expand those protections and limit the time anyone can be held in solitary in state prison. 
Jack Beck is an attorney with the Correctional Association of New York. He monitors conditions in New York prisons and reports directly to the state legislature. Jack Beck, thanks for joining Life of the Law. Thank you. Okay, um, Mr. Beck, in 2010, the New York State Legislature passed a law that asked prison officials to give people tests to find out whether they had mental illness before they put them in solitary confinement. And now you've, you've introduced there's a new bill pending. Can you tell me what's happened in the, in the interim? What's going on? Well, the, the previous law was called the SHU exclusion law. SHU actually is uh, the term that we use for solitary confinement. And what it said is that if someone was going to spend 30 days in solitary confinement and they had serious mental illness, they had to be diverted to a residential mental health treatment unit in the prison where they received mental health services. But the story is not so simple and not, and not so good. What we found is the law has a line of what is serious mental illness. What we've seen in the past, there was a certain number of people that, that would reach that line, and now all of a sudden those numbers have been reduced substantially. Since the law was passed, people that were diagnosed with schizophrenia or uh, psychosis, their numbers have dropped by 35% while those that are now diagnosed with adjustment, anxiety, or personality disorders have risen by 72%. And those are not covered under this law. So if they're, di- if they're diagnosed with these secondary or other mental illnesses, they don't receive treatment? They possibly will not. Most people with those diagnoses don't qualify. So what we're seeing is that people with mental illnesses are still being put in solitary confinement in New York State prisons. So yes, there are still more than 700 people who are receiving mental health services and still put in solitary confinement. It is very common that these people will actually deteriorate and have to be sent to uh, a mental health crisis unit inside the prison. What's the purpose of putting someone with a mental illness in solitary confinement? I mean, it would be obvious, it would seem, if you saw someone deteriorating. What's the purpose of keeping them there? I would describe it this way. The correctional system really has only one tool that they use to try to control the population, and that is isolation. You mean the only tool to deal with people who are acting out violently? Well, it doesn't even have to be violent. Many people end up in disciplinary confinement for, for nonviolent acts, as simple as having too many stamps, nothing to do with violence. You can still be put in isolation. So you've introduced this new bill in New York State, and I believe it's called HALT? HALT stands for Humane Alternatives to Long-Term Isolation. What it would say is that no one no one should be in isolation more than 15 days. Beyond 15 days, people can experience permanent harm. And there are certain people that shouldn't be in there at all, and that would include people with mental illness. We don't say that people who are acting out and have behavioral problems just need to be left alone, but rather they need a more effective intervention, and there are interventions that seem to work. So what are the chances of this actually getting passed? Well, we've made a lot of progress. I would anticipate this is going to take some years to kind of get this through because it's a fundamental change to get away from punishment at all costs, but rather seeing that intervening effectively with people actually increases the safety for everyone, both the incarcerated population, the staff there, and more importantly, when these people return to society. Jack Beck, thank you so much for joining Life of the Law. Thank you. This episode of Life of the Law was reported by Annie Brown with support from the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Annie's working on a qualitative study on how solitary confinement affects women. 
Our episode was edited by Michael May with sound design and production by Jonathan Hirsch and Caitlin Prest. Our music was composed by Garrett Tedeman and Todd McDonald. Life of the Law is a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Infinite Guest Network of podcasts from American Public Media. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the National Science Foundation, the Law and Society Association, and the Proteus Fund. Next week on our sister podcast, Live Law, we filed a complaint. It was a little rocky at first, but by the time we got our third intake officer, who was not homophobic, she assured us that we had a great case. (laughs) That's next week on Live Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.